An artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. I, and, and at this crucial time in our lives, when everything is so desperate, when every day is a matter of survival, I don't think you can help but be involved. Young people, black and white, know this. That's why they're so involved in politics. We will shape and mold this country, or it will not be molded and shaped at all anymore. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast celebrating Women's History Month from a male point of view. How do you like that? I'm keeping my <laughs> mouth shut. <laughs> Sounds great. We're also celebrating Women's History Month without putting our pictures on the cover of everything. I'm hip. That's one of the mistakes that the Oberlin Conservatory made this past week. We'll be getting into that in the Triloquy. Uh, that, Go sounds, ahead. that just sounds like such a <laughs> quackmire. Okay. How you feeling this week, Scott? My sleep has been off. Yeah. Yeah, we have hit we have hit the point in winter where my body has said, No, you've been sleeping for three months. You're staying up. Mm. So yeah, it's it's been strange. I'll sleep in shifts and be up in the middle of the night and then fall asleep in the middle of the day. I'll get it together. But sure. Well, it's you know, just with- one, it's just we're we're getting close to that point where people are freaking out because spring is about to spring and it doesn't seem like it's going to go right we just got more snow yeah well what i was going to say was growing up as a kid march you know we're in women's history month now march march was springtime that means winter was done (laughs) up here in minnesota that is not at all the case no we're gonna get a little bit we got a while to go yeah we'll get one more we'll get one more dump of snow for sure well, uh, thanks to everyone who is returning to the Triloquy Podcast. Thank you so much for supporting us week after week. To the new listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a podcast that takes different types of music, classical, so-called classical and otherwise, and relates it to the real world. We actually have a bit of the Western classical to uh, talk about today. But before mm-hmm. we get into uh, all of that, a little housekeeping to take care of here. Scott, if you want, if you would do the honors. Triloquy is supported by Unclassified. Unclassified curates fresh classical music playlists for moments and themes, including Women of Classical, Hues of Music, Black Voices, Classical Pride, and more. You can follow them at Unclassified HQ on social media and discover more at unclassified.com. And some of that more includes special written features. I'm looking at one right here written by Miss Mara Miller on uh, the topic of composer Erilyn Wallen. Six questions with composer Erilyn Wallen is what I'm seeing over here at unclassified.com. And Erilyn Wallen also happens to be one of the composers that uh, we're going to talk about today, right? Right. Just a happy coincidence. I hadn't read that piece from Mara, but we're going to touch on Erilyn's Concerto Grosso today. Yeah. So shout out to Mara and shout out to everyone over at Unclassified for supporting Triloquy. Um, Scott is not just Erilyn Wallen. I have some Nina Simone I wanted to talk about. Women's History Month. You know, I feel like you have to talk about Nina Simone. And I think we talked about her like the week before last, but 
too important of a of a figure not to bring in. Agreed. No, of, you're you're never going to get march a, with. You'll never get a complaint out of me to listen to Nina. Uh, today's guest is Miss Abby Fayette, the newest member of the Catalyst String Quartet, uh, replacing Miss Jessie Montgomery in that quartet. Jessie, yeah. who you've met uh, firsthand, she's doing incredible things, and Abby is uh, on the precipice of doing some really incredible things with Catalyst as well. I also mentioned while I'm thinking about her, Abby is a member of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. So, oh. you know, a, a musician who's really out here cool. on the ground. We're going to talk a little bit about what the Catalyst Quartet um, has coming, some new releases from them. And Abby also talks about um, a new relationship with the idea and the conversation of music by women and people of color and really just normalizing the all white male programs not being normal. You know, mm. that's, a, that's a really um, important part of it. We do have uh, a couple men to speak about as well within the frame of Women's History Month and women's art, of mm -hmm. course. So let's go ahead and jump into the first movement. I'd like to start first with a natural, Garrett. We received some email. And I want to give a quick, As always. <laughs> right? I want to. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Tamberly. Yeah, she's been a friend of the podcast for a while, and uh, in regard, Tamberly Ferguson down at WDAV. Shout out to her. Uh, thanks for that. Yeah. So, in regard to our conversation about ownership of content, mm -hmm. she wrote in and said, "Scott, you will never be our business manager, <laughs> and you and, won't." She's right. <laughs> and let me let me first say, Tamberly, astute. Very astute assessment. <laughs> but you don't want me for your business manager for a lot of other reasons. But it gives me the opportunity to sort of give some clarity there because I was speaking specifically about being in radio. Yeah. And anytime I work for a station, I understood that I was a representative of that station. And anything that I had, you know, I could take scripts with me, yeah. research, but any actual recorded content I knew would be staying there. Okay, but where do you draw the line? Would you demand those scripts if if a company alleged that that belongs to them as well? I would, yeah, I would fight for the scripts. That's my intellectual property. And see, I, I don't draw the line. If it involves me, I feel like I ought to own it. And okay. I think Tamberly agrees. Yeah, I, I get that. But if I <laughs> but was, the reality is that you know, I was radio the, is work for hire, right? Right. And if if it was a production house or if I was doing something like you did, like The Sound of 13 or right. something like that, then yes, I would want ownership. But um, I'm not. I'm not married to the idea of leaving the content that I did with a station behind if I were to go to another one. No, I feel that I'm definitely married, though, to the ownership part. And this conversation is not over. We're not going to dig into that this week. But I think, again... The conversation of ownership of property really opens you up to conversations of how you can sell and monetize different bits of content. Mm -hmm. I think there are just certain conversations that you don't have to have when you are in ownership of the content in every way you can be. Sure. And, and it's not all about money, but money is certainly an important aspect of it. I asked you um, what composition that you are interested in connecting with your natural your shout out to Tamberly and the first place you went was Cardi B so shout out to you Scott with your ear to the ground <laughs> money bag <laughs> the uh one one thing I think is important to note about Cardi B before we listen to a little bit of money bag Cardi B made history as well in, in many different ways I'm reading just from the Wikipedia here Cardi B is the first female rap artist um, in 15 years uh nominated for album of the year that's when she was nominated for album of the year um, a few years ago. I'm also reading here 
Um, uh, I like it. The tune I like it made Cardi B the first female rapper, first woman rapper, as I would say, to attain multiple number one songs on the Billboard Hot 100. So that, among many mm-hmm. other things, just a, a historic Respect. person. Cardi coming up from, you know, the Bronx through the strip clubs to number one to her mansion in uh in Atlanta mm-hmm. with Offset and and everything you know the the little baby at home just living the life we we all love the rags to riches but she did even more you know Cardi B just an important uh, figure in in Black history and uh, and women's history especially so shout out to Tamberly Ferguson thanks shout for out. the shout outs. Shout out to Cardi B, and uh, here's a little bit of money bag to get us to our next accidental. Women's History Month, as it applies to Western classical music, is so much more than just women composers and women performers. There's there's history, relatively contemporary history, tied with problematic gender norms within classical music, specifically with the Vienna Philharmonic. Are you familiar with any of that drama, the relationship between gender equity and the Vienna Philharmonic specifically? You mean the Vienna Boys Club? Sure, sure. What do you mean by that, for folks for folks who have no idea? I guess I should say men's club. Um <laughs> Well, but, any group of men who don't want women in is is boyish to me, but yeah. <laughs> but it was an all-male ensemble, right? Yeah. Berlin, yeah. Berlin too, all the way up into the early 80s. Yeah, for the Vienna Philharmonic, it was February 27th of 1997. Yeah. You were a grown ass. You were all the way grown. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I think I might have had a beard by that point. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was 10 years into my life. So it's not we're not talking about so long ago when the Vienna Philharmonic was just really um, that boys club, as you say. But they want to play social justice now. Uh, an article came out. Didn't we, <laughs> didn't we drag them a little bit at New Year's, too? We probably did. For the New Year's concert? We, we probably did. It's not personal, Vienna Philharmonic. We're just reporting the news, giving the news to the people. In this article from OperaWire.com, dated uh, February 26th, a few days ago, as we're recording this, it says, Vienna Philharmonic releases statement regarding Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Um, I'll read a little bit of the statement from the Vienna Philharmonic. It says, the world is watching. 30% of the members of the Met Orchestra can no longer sustain a living in New York City. City due to being faced with no salary from the Metropolitan Opera since April 1st of 2020. This number will likely climb higher as the crisis continues. I'll link this in the description of this for you to read the rest of the article. I think it's very um, valiant for an institution as globally famous as the Vienna Philharmonic to name this issue. There are many other issues, though. As I mentioned, as we just got done talking about, they just started letting women in. So I feel a way about them riding this high horse about pay your musicians when they have been inequitable in recent history. Mm. When you frame this critique, additionally, when you frame this critique around 30% of your orchestra members not being able to live in New York City due to being faced with no salary, there are a lot of other people who the Met has never engaged, has never had a, had a in their eyes, has never had a reason to try to rope into what they're doing, who, who have always been struggling out here. Mm. I think it's unfair to frame 
all of this COVID stuff around the most privilege of individuals in a place. And for New York City, Met musicians would be that. They're, we, we, and we covered salaries before. Right. They're making six-figure salaries. And not that I want to diminish the fact that they need to be paid, but we really need to read the room and check ourselves before we reach out and take this grand sort of stand on something. I think we, we've seen that at the institutional level and at the individual level. That's what that's what I'm saying is that, you know, yeah, it's great that they called this out. And I think that organizations are going to have to be keeping one another accountable. But making sure your own stuff is lined up because you don't want to be going, uh, hello, pot, this is the kettle. I'm right. just calling to let you know you're black. Exactly. Um, you know, when, when we talk about Oberlin later on in the triloquy, we're going to talk about playing outside. You know, you mm-hmm. you you have come outside now. So mm-hmm. for Vienna to come out and make a statement like this against the Met, which I happen to agree with, the Vienna Philharmonic is not wrong. But if the Vienna Philharmonic is calling you out, you are really not doing something right. <laughs> That's a good and, point. And, and shout out to Dell for, for giving me that point earlier. But even beyond that, the Vienna Philharmonic is stepping outside, stepping into the general discourse by making statements like these and when you step outside that means we can jump you as well right you are not absolved from your own accountability so we know that there was backlash on the oberlin thing that's coming up Mm -hmm. what was the online reaction to this statement i haven't seen a lot of online reaction because the vienna philharmonic is sort of that thing over there and you know even with even with the met you know they're that thing over there to a lot of people as well right so Mm -hmm. but but maybe there'll be some uh Maybe this will this will develop over the uh, over the coming weeks. I guess we'll have to see. So, um, warm thoughts, I suppose, to everyone at the Vienna Philharmonic and the Met. I hope y'all figure out how to um, make black folks like me care, because quite frankly, I just see white on white arguments, white on white crime here, and you know. You know how I feel about that. I do. <laughs> it's a uh, Women's History Month, so obviously we won't be featuring a performance by the Vienna Philharmonic. But there are lots of recordings out there featuring the Women's Philharmonic, and uh, in uh, in light of racial equity within the constructs of Women's History Month, I thought it would be great to revisit the nice Juba dance from Florence Price's Third Symphony. Here's a little bit of that. In censuring women's history and music by women in the topics that uh, we have to talk about today, I actually had a few examples that could connect to uh, this next accidental. So Florence Price, Mm -hmm. who we just heard from, wrote a piece of music called The Oak, right? This wooden piece of music. Uh, We aren't going to talk about that, but we are going to talk about Tiger Woods. So since the last time we recorded, Tiger was in a one-vehicle accident that towed the car up Told both of his legs up. He needed the uh, jaws of life. No, they corrected that. Oh, did they? They corrected that. Yep. It was, uh, I think that a lot of people have that in their mind as soon as they hear that there was devices used to get him out. I mean, they were really saying that, though. Yeah. And CNN did make a big gesture of making that correction, but they they only used an axe to bust out the windshield and they, they brought him out that way. Well... My thing was, so first of all, he's healing, right? Mm-hmm. Tiger is doing better. He, he had the tiger. He had surgery yeah. that, that day. This, this gets a sharp. I don't know if I, I mentioned it just because he's getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they re- because and, and I say that because car wrecks are a, a, a very serious thing. And if Tiger had died, we'd be on here giving our uh, doing our tributes and stuff. So doing we need to RG. make sure that we, we we name that he's doing all right. But they really wanted to make sure we knew. I mean, no shade. I, I understand that Tiger is a a, a legend. You'd have thought it was Barack Obama in the car, the way they were covering Or him. that he was killed. Yeah. I or mean, that what, he ran what, over some school children or what, something. What, what did you think about that? Just the, 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 the energy that the news sources were putting into this. I'm in a spot where I, I'm, I'm not getting animated and too bent out of shape about anything. It just, it's just another day, right? Well, it's not about re- being animated or bent out of shape as much as it just, again, it just seemed like, wow, y'all really want to make sure that we know this. It seemed like... Well, we knew know, more about... We knew more about tiger and his car wreck than we did on where our stimulus checks are listen listen um there's a lot of coverage they covered a lot of ground i don't even watch the news anymore because every time i see biden on tv it upsets me because Mm -hmm. we we put all of this energy around getting him in and trump out help help us hell anyway that's what we're not talking about that right now but um they really wanted to make sure that we knew about this tiger woods thing one of the things i thought about we were talking about earlier was how much people Love to come up, but not as much as the fall off. They love to see and the fall. comeback mm-hmm. from that. And it seems like that's what they're trying to set up. So if Tiger Woods, he they fix his legs, you know, he had fractures everywhere. They fix his legs and he comes out and wins another green blazer. The folks are, are, are going to stand, aren't they? I don't know about that, but they made a big deal out of the the transition in his personality. They talked about how he was... Uh, back in the day, he was all about winning, laser focused, uh, a real tiger, right? Right. And then they start talking about his son and how he's taken on this sort of fatherly coaching sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, yeah, that's I mean, that's important and all that, but it, it just seemed like another way to fill up more of the wall-to-wall Tiger programming that took over for a while. And, and, and like, like I said, no shade. We're glad that Tiger is doing better. They just really put a lot of energy into it. They did. It. Maybe it's because it was Black History Month. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's, that was their way of being equitable. <laughs> well, anyway, shout out to everyone over there um, in the woods camp uh, to transition us out again. As I mentioned earlier, it, it won't be The Oak by Florence Price, but there uh, is another uh, piece of music that I've loved for a while by composer Jennifer Higdon. It's called Dark Wood. It's a bassoon feature. Mm. And uh, and so often we think of the bassoon as this instrument that lives in one era. We, the, the Vivaldi bassoon concertos, maybe even the Mozart getting into the romantic era, the Saint-Saëns and all, all that sort of thing, Hummel and, and all those people. But Jennifer Higdon in this piece of music did a really good job of taking the wooden woody sound of the bassoon and putting it into this uh, really contemporary setting that i've always loved so again shout out to tiger woods here's a piece called dark wood an excerpt of it by miss jennifer higdon It was kind of interesting how one of the first things they talked about was whether or not there was some sort of chemical in his system. Well, you know, they they were waiting. 
to to kill him and that not murder him but what I, I kill as in slam his name you mm-hmm. know drag him through the they they couldn't wait to find some coke in the car or something could they or mm. prescription drug something in, like that anything but they didn't did they no mm-hmm. he not, was clean. Not, not not this time media um <laughs> now um and and better news and much better news Somebody got out of jail. So somebody was freed since the last time we recorded. Big shout out to Bobby Schmurder. I'm reading a little bit here from Revolt.tv. This morning, February 23rd, as it was written, Bobby Schmurder walked out of jail a free man. According to the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision Database, the hot blanker MC has been released after serving a six-year sentence. One of the uh, reasons Ref- that, Refresh us on why he was right, in jail yeah, first. W- w- one of the reasons why I think this is an important story, because a few weeks ago we were talking about how, I forget, maybe it was Baltimore or somebody said that it's okay to use rap lyrics in court right as right. far well that's what got him in jail in that song um hot blanker again i'm not saying the word in, in mixed company mm-hmm. um he talked about you know some crimes that took place mm-hmm. and that you know in in conjunction with a, a few other things got him in jail unlike some rappers who the world has been talking about bobby Schmurder did not snitch he sat in jail and and didn't sell his friends out and and stuck to his uh, proverbial guns mm-hmm. and so his time came out and um he's he's finally free what i think about is the uh, sacrifices you know that you make in being a part of a team um i'll use that word a part of a team and how you're rewarded for it afterwards bobby schmurder doesn't have to work another day in his life and you know he has the the community and the resources to really mm-hmm. live a phenomenal life and to create um even more music um you know in the context of women's history month. I wanted to um, connect Bobby Schmurder to Josephine Baker, who we talked about a few weeks ago. So uh, when we brought up Bobby Schmurder um, last time on this podcast, we talked about him in that uh, boardroom for mm-hmm. Epic Records mm-hmm. performing this song, Hot Blanker, and other things in front of all these white people crowded into a boardroom, just kind of staring and watching this black man perform for them. And it reminded me of the Josephine Baker documentary that I watched uh, last month. I think I mentioned it right. and how really that is her legacy as far as what she did. It's just being placed out of context. We were talking about that banana photo, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, give can, can you can you give the folks an idea of what that moment was as far as the banana costume, the idea of the black primitive, the black jungle. What, what's your perspective on why that sort of production was taking place back in Josephine Baker's day? Well, it creates sort of a, an exotic era around her, doesn't right. it? Exactly. Exactly. Um, some, some, um, I know that this is going to come out wrong. Some spice or flavor that is otherwise unavailable Mm -hmm. to them right 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 and it it creates a novelty around it specifically with the famous photo of josephine baker never mind the the banana skirt right never mind the talent that was obviously there it kind of played into you know the setting of this these jungle people these jungle men and oh here's this jungle woman who is you know showing us the the primitive and and colorful dancing and gyrating and she was treated much better in France than she was in the United States, despite having to play into that. Mm. Um, I think about this in conjunction with Bobby Schmurter again, because performing in that boardroom in front of all of those flat face 
you know, white executives was his means of going off and getting rich and, and, and all that stuff. Similar in my, from my perspective to Josephine Baker, I'm challenged because I hate to think about the idea of someone shucking and jiving, but that's quite literally what it was. Um, How do you think that parlays, you know, this whole conversation, how do you think that parlays into into today? Are we are we shucking and jiving today? I mean, I don't want you to accuse anybody. I'm not going to accuse anybody, but I feel like it's out there. <laughs> you heard you remember the way that Ooh. I the way that I put it was singing for your supper. Right. Was the way right. that I put it. And I want to draw a correlation back to just last opus when we were talking about one night in Miami. Right. Because here's Sam Cook who is being accused of selling out and performing just for the white man, taking his culture and selling it out. Right. And here's Jim Brown. You know, he's already running for the white man, for the Cleveland Browns. Now you want to go and get on screen and let him, you know, watch you parade around in some other character? Yeah. Even Muhammad Ali talking about how he was welcoming their ire. He was he wanted to get people stirred up and not liking him so that they would pay that $100 to come and watch him so it's it seems like people doing what they need to do to succeed in the environment am i wrong and i uh, I, I hesitate because it's an uncomfortable conversation even for me but when i think about again bobby Schmurda uh in epic records in that uh in that boardroom when i think about josephine baker and all the stages that she had to stand on and dance on making mm-hmm. funny places and, and feeding into what she had to do to survive and to be accepted. It's very much here today when black folks take jobs in orchestras and yeah. radio stations and what, and whatever you want to do. And I think the dissonance that I feel and that a lot of people feel is realizing, really seeing how the shucking and jiving of days past translates into this 21st century and how many of us have to continue to be respectable. I'm going to, we're going to use that word later in the triloquy, how respectability still rules over so many things. And some of us, have the privilege i'm speaking to myself some of us have the privilege of working outside of that even just for a little while other people other black folks other women will always be under that and as often as we can try to free each other from that name it and inspire those in power to allow folks that work under you to really speak their truth and not shuck and jive for you the closer we'll get to that thing called liberation. Ooh, ooh, mm, 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 mm. I, 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 sh- I shake, I shake my head because it's, it's a difficult conversation, and it there is. are a lot of black folks listening right now who are shucking and jiving in their own way. And I understand that we all have to do what we all we have, have to, to do, do. But, but let's put it in context yeah. and let's name it for what it was. We celebrate Josephine Baker because she made a way where there was seemingly no way. You know, a, a, a poor young woman. Um, making her way all the way overseas to France and living a good life, not only just making it, but being accepted, even if it was by means of something that, from my perspective in historical context, was a little unfortunate. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we we honor her, of course, as did uh, composer Valerie Coleman with a very famous piece of music called Portraits of Josephine Baker. Here's a little bit of that as we honor Josephine Baker, as we welcome Bobby Schmurter home, and as we transition into Movement 2.
Valerie Coleman is, of course, a founding member of the group Imani Wins, alongside another very important woman to me, the bassoonist Monica Ellis, who I didn't know was a composer, but apparently she is, huh? It is, she is. I ran across some of her music a few days ago because, I'll be honest, Garrett, I, uh, I don't gravitate toward wind music. It's not mm-hmm. what I... I don't dislike it at all. It's just not what I go to first. So... I've been trying to expand my uh, listening circle or uh, my my playlists, and Monica's music came across. Um, she is uh, also playing bassoon on this uh, bassoon and piano piece called Elegy for Innocence. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that you could take this opportunity just to give me a little bit of background on what you know of Monica. Yeah, I'm looking forward to dive into this new-to-me piece of music for bassoon. But concerning Monica, first time I brought home a bassoon, 12 years old, first piece of music I heard was Vivaldi's Bassoon Concerto in E minor, which if you think about it, Scott, the uh, concertos by Vivaldi also play a really important role when we talk about women's history because mm-hmm. it was all little girls who were playing that music in the first place. La Pieta. B- Vivaldi was uh, the the red priest, as he was called, was you know teaching at this orphanage and teaching all of this music to these little girls. Some of them playing bassoon concertos that formed the the foundation of uh, of so many of our careers. Of course, what a lot of people don't know is that the little girls were performing behind a screen so that you only saw their facades when they actually would perform. Because I suppose back in Baroque era Italy, it was inappropriate to look at young girls to playing instruments. Young. Or, mm-hmm. Right. So, so so anyway, that was the first. The second was the Libertango as performed by Imani Wynn. So hearing Monica Ellis, this woman with locks who was black, who looked free to me in my 12-year-old mind, you know, um, playing the bassoon. It was very important for me to see. I may I may not have stuck with it if I didn't see that. You know how we talk about um, music of uh, composers and musicians of color being overshadowed or right. neglected or whatever? Let's just get down to this combo, bassoon and piano, because you don't see many recordings of that coming across the playlists on radio stations or even, you know, maybe a recital here and there. Sure. Why do you think it is that certain instrument combinations don't get the same respect as, say, a piano and violin combo? Yeah, it's hard for me to say because obviously I have performed and attended well, sure. lots of bassoon and piano sure. recitals. So I guess I never thought of the uh, rarity of it. I think there are just more violin players. I think there are more cello players. And, you know, so so that means there are more performances and there was more music. I think we're seeing more bassoonists come up uh you know we had joey a couple weeks ago shout out to them and 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 lots of other bassoonists out there uh so yeah i i don't know i I that that would be my guess is that just there aren't a lot of bassoon players who have always been out there certainly not a lot of black ones so yeah well i wanted to give a hats off to monica in this one because as i was listening to this is a elegy for innocence is about eight or nine minutes worth of music and she really shows all the different colors of, of the bassoon and, you know, the tranquil bits and the more frantic and, and sort of um, 
um, more challenging, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. I don't want to use that word necessarily, but you know, Mid-orally. she right, sure, sure, you know, she she really shows a. a a wide range of the palette of the bassoon with this. And um, in this recording, it's Jed Moss with her playing piano. pleasure of meeting Monica for the first time. This is 2021 now, so it must have been the summer of 2019. I went over uh, to the Gateways Music Festival in Rochester, New York to do some work, and Monica was playing, so I got to chat with her for a minute. We got a photo, a a full circle, full circle moment. (laughs) It was... I want to choke up thinking about it, because when she walked in the door, I was walking out the door, and I was like, Monica and she was like oh Garrett Garrett McQueen hey nice to meet you and we kind of walked past each other and then you know I came back and made the point oh I've been listening to you for years and for Monica to know my name nice yeah you know so shout out to Monica Ellis shout out to Imani Wins for you know really being foundational to so so many of us not only black musicians certainly I'm sure women musicians as well seeing women lead in that way uh, and a mostly women group actually yeah. originally it was four women and just Jeff Scott on, yeah. on horn so huge shout out to them and, and such important women um, another very important woman that uh, I wanted to highlight in this second movement um, was Armenta Hummings Dumasani. So I mentioned that I have, I went, I met Monica at the Gateways Music Festival. Well, the Gateways Music Festival was founded by Armenta Hummings Dumasani uh, last week uh, for a Black History Month celebration for WXXI FM in Rochester. Shout out to uh, Kirsten Piper Brown and everybody over there. We uh, honored uh, Armenta Hummings Dumasani for Black History Month, not only as a very important uh, black musician, but as a very important woman um, to black history into women's history. So in addition to founding the Gateways Music Festival back in 1993, um, she taught at the Eastman School of Music, a, a Juilliard grad, incredible pianist who actually knew Scott. We talked about her earlier. She knew the the Kings, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Coretta Scott King, because, of course, Coretta was a singer, mm-hmm. um, was studying at the New England Conservatory. Um, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned Armina Hummings Dumasani because there are so many women who have a big name, black women even, who have a big name these days in classical music, Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, all those people. Without Armenta's work, so many conversations would not happen. So many relationships would not have been garnered. I mean, the Gateways Music Festival is really that central place, one of the central places where black folks really meet and engage certain things, form initiatives. I mean, so many things... um, connected to the Triloquy podcast, have come from Gateways. A number of the opuses were actually recorded at Gateways Music Festivals. So I just want to make sure everyone knows the name Armenta Hummings Dumasani. I'll put some more information about her in the description of this opus. Uh, But for now, I wanted to uh, feature one of her performances. If you go on YouTube, there's a channel of a few of her performances. And one of them that we featured um, on WXXI last week in our celebration of her was one called The Cuckoo by a composer 
named Howard Swanson, a black composer. I don't know if you know um, that composer. Did, did, did that name sound familiar to you, Not Howard Swanson? Mm-mm. Yeah, so there, so there are so many uh, composers, black composers, that Armenta has uh, put the world onto. So here's a little bit of uh, The Cuckoo by Howard Swanson as performed by Armenta Hummings Dumasani in celebration of her musicianship and everything that she's done for women and men in classical music. Talking about spring being on the verge of springing and yeah, those cuckoos coming out. That sort of tension between wanting the 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 warm weather and 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 going out in shorts and all that, but you can't because it's still factually twenty five degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I needed some music to match, and the Concerto Grosso of Erlen Wallen fit the bill. Do you know Do you know this piece? Concerto Grosso by Erlen? Uh, I do, yeah. 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 So she is a, an Afro-British composer. Right. Um, born in Belize, moved to London when she was two years old with her family. Right. And um, she's officially a dame, too. I don't know if you know this. She's oh, been well. knighted twice. And for women, you become a dame. So mm-hmm. uh, congratulations. But um, her Concerto Grosso, both the first and the final movements, reminded me of a chase. So first of all, concerto grosso. Uh, what did I say? No, what what is that? What is a concerto grosso? It's a big quiz. Big concerto. It's a concerto that features more than one instrument. Soloist, sure. Yeah, it's not a soloist. And they were really big. You see concerto grossos all the time way back in the uh, Baroque and early classical eras. I think it's interesting for contemporary composers like Errol and Wallen to bring that concept into the 21st century. Schoenberg did it too, didn't he? Say, you know, we can we can write new pieces with old notes. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, a lot of stuff. Um, but that chase feeling and I got to f- I got the feeling of like maybe running with radar mm-hmm. you know and uh, Asada Kenna Mason is the pianist and the interplay between her and the orchestra you said you knew this orchestra the Chinike yeah Chinike Orchestra Chin- Chinike Orchestra with an exclamation point yep founded by Chichi Nwanoku who I don't know if you remember meeting her at Sphinx but a, a very important bassist a founding member of the uh, orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment oh okay you know, if you, if you know okay. that group so yes yeah, Shout out, huge shout out to uh, Chichi Nwanoku for uh, Chiniki and all the work she does as well. So the playfulness of uh, the way that the piano, the different soloists actually in the in the orchestra would sort of chase each other around the, the manuscript page, I guess. And uh, the one that really stuck out to me, though, was the second movement, because it starts off with this sort of slow walking bass line and the way that it's recorded creates a space. It creates uh, a bubble that you feel like you're in. Mm-hmm. And I got the feeling of being in a down in the downtown of some city late at night, like after the rain had stopped sure. and, and things are starting to pick back up moving again. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring in that, that second movement to listen to a little bit with the Chiniki Orchestra and Asada Kenna Mason playing the piano. Thank you. 
I'm going to be honest with you, Scott. With Women's History Month, I put a lot of energy into saying, okay, we have to make sure we have plenty of women in here. I feel like we do that anyway. Yeah, and I, and yeah. I think this moment is a testament to how if you really take a chance and look at so-called classical music, Western classical music outside of that Bach and Mozart and Brahms perspective, you see how much women and specifically women of color have really infused into it. We've talked about mm -hmm. Earl and Wallen and you can't talk about that performance without talking about Chi Chi. And then you can't talk about um, that performance without talking about Isatakani Mason. So, you know, the, the fact of the matter is women, black women are all over this thing called classical music we just have to not say the name beethoven for a few minutes and that's okay you know cool and, not, and not only for march but for for the entire year i just wanted to uh make sure i made that point um one of the uh one of the things that i talk with uh the guests today about um abby fayette is norms surrounding um you know being a woman being a woman performer abby talks about wearing a suit on the stage of carnegie hall instead of a dress and and mm. the thought process that she went through there i'm i'm thinking about all that and uh, bring that up as a means of introducing uh the final piece for this second movement by nina simone it's called don't smoke in bed nina simone you know as we as we always say um is integral is pivotal is essential to understand American classical music. The phrase black classical music is one that I got from Nina Simone. Nina Simone has spoken to an artist's responsibility to speak to the time. So you cannot talk about classical music in the United States, race, women in music without talking about Nina Simone. And, you know, just like Abby, Nina Simone faced so many challenges and had to do things in her own way. You know, she I love her cover of, of the song My Way. And now the end is near and so I got to face the final curtain curtain friends Say it clear and state my case of which I'm certain. And having that unapologetic approach as a woman is why she made such a huge impact. And I think women all over the field of, of classical music are doing that, including Abby. Um, so to lead us into my conversation with Abby, I wanted to share a tune of, uh, by Nina Simone called Don't Smoke in Bed. There, of all of the tunes of hers that I love, you know, Go to Hell, Mississippi Goddamn, Sinner Man, you know, there, there's so many. Don't Smoke in Bed hits particularly for me because it lays out a time in Nina Simone's life where she had to step out and do her own thing. So it's like writing a letter, uh, breaking up with her significant other and just leaving it there. And with the final message being, and remember, don't smoke in bed, you know. Mm. That was the first song that uh, I listened to in the car after I left my now late ex. Um, and it, it was just something. I, I'll, I'll never forget that moment. Driving away from, you know, 10 years. I, I was with him for 10 years. Driving away from 10 years of my life after writing a letter saying it's done. And listening to that song. Listening to, you know, how a woman went through something that I was feeling as well. And... 
it's just one of those one of those compositions by Nina Simone that I think uh, a lot of people will not know, and I wanted to make sure I share that. So, um, as I pick up my emotions here, <laughs> thinking back to that era of my life, this is a little bit of "Don't Smoke in Bed" by Nina Simone, and this is my conversation with Miss Abby Fayette. I left a note on his dresser. And my old wedding ring With these I started going to sleepaway summer festivals when I was 10. Um, and I've been going to summer festivals ever since. Um, so there's something that have always been a part of my life. The first summer festival that I went to from about 2004, I believe, up until, let's see, 2010, was Greenwood Music Camp, which is a chamber music camp for strings and piano um, located in uh, the Berkshires in Massachusetts. I have to say that um, for me, I always went to chamber music oriented um, camps mm -hmm. and festivals and especially early in my development, I really owe my passion for chamber music um, to those festivals, um, Greenwood in particular. It's where I really learned kind of what the most fun thing about playing chamber music was, not just the amazing repertoire, but it's a really awesome place to sort of flex your creativity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a violinist, when you play in an orchestra, it's a different type of um, creative uh, music making, but you are one of many in a section. So you right. have to balance your own creativity with the creativity of the entire ensemble. Um, so chamber music for me was really where I found that um, I could really, you know, be the most ambitious and be the most, uh, and it was a very exciting um, very exciting experience for me to sit down with just a few other people and really feel like, we're in this bubble creating something together. Yeah, yeah. It's adorable to me. I have to say that you say sleepaway festivals. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's, that, that's really something. This, it seems like this would be about the time of year when folks are thinking about summer festivals. But of course, with COVID, all of that has, has changed. I mean, considering our, our new reality, do you think there's a risk of summer festivals going away? What do you think is the future of the summer festival? I definitely do not think that summer festivals are in any danger of disappearing. I think like much of our industry, um, COVID has actually had a little bit of a silver lining for classical music. I think as most people know, classical music is historically very slow to change. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the you know greater picture of the social um, climate of the world, classical music is usually lagging behind. Right. Um, so COVID has actually kind of thrust classical music into this sort of new age of embracing technology and sort of forced classical music organizations and individual music musicians alike to have to find a way to adapt in this digital world, yeah. which I actually think is a good thing. You know, I've had many conversations with friends and colleagues that say like, oh, don't you think that this digital age of music is going to be the death of classical music? And I was like, if anything, in my mind, it's actually going to be. If you if you know, if um, 
used in the correct way actually can be a way to expand classical music exactly and expand it to and and give many many more people accessibility to an art form that you know is highly criticized for being inaccessible yeah yeah you know one of the you made me think one uh, i won't name the festival but one of the festivals that i've been involved with i publicly critiqued the festival's programming you know you talk about slow to change so many of mm -hmm. the arts organizations the the brick and mortar orchestras have begun to talk about you know music by women uh, music by composers of color i publicly critiqued one of the festivals i was involved with with not doing that and mm -hmm. of course i was not asked back the next year you know that's one conversation but, you know, generally speaking, what role do you think uh, festivals can play in promoting that sort of music, music by women, composers of color, living composers, considering, you know, summer festivals being the spark of what ended up being your career, your love for chamber music? It seems like festivals have a uh, have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, there's there's there are more perspectives being portrayed from the stage. You know, I've always thought of summer festivals as having a responsibility to educate um, young artists in a way that they can't in in the way in which that they're, you know, year round institutions don't. Yeah. So you're not looking for, you know, a festival to, you know, give you a weekly lesson with a faculty member. That's just going to be a continuation on what you already get all year. To me, that's not the point of a summer festival. And, you know. I agree with you, Garrett, when you say that festivals have a responsibility to sort of expose students to, you know, different music, music of women, um, music of people of color and all this. And also, you know, music of people who are not from the Western classical music tradition mm -hmm. as well. Let's include those composers in there as well. Um, you know, joining the Catalyst Quartet has been a really amazing experience in so many ways, but one of the things I'm most grateful for is I have to admit that previously I was not very aware or involved or played a lot of music by um, black composers or women composers. So to think that summer festivals can really, you know, in what way can they, can they open the doors for students like this? You know, I remember um, a good friend of mine who's in the Philadelphia Orchestra said that Wynton Marsalis was speaking to the orchestra earlier in the year. And one of the things that he said, he says, you want to include female composers. You want to include um, composers of color in your programming. Don't just make it a one time special event, you right. know, like, oh, you know, this is so great. We're going to have a night of female composers or we're going to have a night of black composers build them in as part of your normal programming. I mean, to sort of isolate them and put them in just this one special event on the surface may seem like you're doing something, you know, to promote them, but actually that's a way of kind of, you know, singling them out even more. Yeah, further in a negative, yeah. right, in a, you know, in that way. So I think summer festivals can start to um, include these composers. You know, there's a lot of assigning of repertoire and so instead of assigning 10 Beethoven quartets, mm -hmm. you know, why don't you only do like three and, you know, include something that's different, um, something that's off the beaten path. I mean, all of the repertoire that I've played, I've, I have never played any Samuel Coach Taylor. I never played any Florence Price. I never played any George Walker, all of these composers. And I can tell you right now, they all blow my mind just as much if not more than a Brahms quartet or a Beethoven quartet or a Bartok quartet.
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get you, you spoke to, you know, that moment of realization for yourself, realizing that, you know, you had even been focusing, we, we all have been based on mm-hmm. our training, I'll, we'll get back to that in a second. But you know, when you talk about being blown away by uh, the composers uh, featured on Uncovered, you know, again, mm-hmm. it's it seemed as, it's seen as normal, unfortunately, to see a program to see a, a CD of only dead white composers. Did you have to actually approach this program? project differently or was it as simple as sitting down and, and playing the music the same you would in the same way that you would play Brahms or Beethoven well I think you know definitely this music should be approached the same way that you would approach any other music in the classical canon mm-hmm. you know why why would you do it differently I mean I always find it interesting there's this very you know starting to be this well there has been for many years now this sort of specialized divide happening in the classical music world. And this is very apparent when you look at, you know, um, artists or uh, organizations that are, you know, historically, uh, historical performance organizations, or, you know, the other flip side of that contemporary music organizations. Mm -hmm. And then you have the people that play all the music of dead white European composers. Those are the, basically the three main categories you have of classical musicians, you know? Um, But I don't believe that any of those three categories should ever be approached differently. And that's the same thing, you know, and that's the same way that, you know, approaching the music of Samuel Coors Taylor, or any of these other black composers that we're going to feature on uncovered music is music and should be, you know, approached in the same way. I mean, you have to get inside the composer's head. You have to analyze what they're writing on the page, what that means. And you have to present an interpretation to your audience. I mean, to me, it seems actually in that, you know, in that very simplistic way, fairly obvious, which is why I think it's so interesting that people feel that they have to have these different specific approaches to different music because fundamentally music is music. So what's the issue there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the uh, one of the main reasons that uh, I wanted to talk to you, because not only do you have the unique challenge of facing this music that is new to so many people, you're doing this as the newest member of the Catalyst Quartet. Um, I, I have to say the name Jesse Montgomery. You know, she, she's she's one of our leaders. We we stay in Jesse. Do you feel the pressure of of coming into the Catalyst Quartet um, behind Jesse, as big as her name is as a musician and a composer, or is it just you know business as usual? It certainly is not business <laughs> as usual. There are definitely some big shoes to fill but i feel like it's been um exciting rather than you know pressure inducing um jesse is such a really warm person we've had a couple of opportunities to work together outside of um you know passing the baton the quartet where she's written a few pieces for orpheus chamber orchestra of which i'm a member Mm -hmm. so i've worked with her a little bit in that capacity um and you know the quartet has been working on this uncovered project really since 2018, you know, and um, I was at first a little intimidated by taking, you know, stepping into this project, which from right off the bat, I was already really excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, you know, there's a lot more to this project than just learning and recording and performing these composers music. I mean, the difficulties going from, you know, the fantasy pieces, we had to have, the quartet had to have a score made 
There mm. was no, you know, there are parts, the parts are an IMSLP, but there's no score floating around. Right. Um, many of the pieces, you know, um, going through the Florence Price five folk songs and counterpoint, having to go through painstakingly slowly to figure out which notes might be right or which notes might be wrong. And, you know, we've um, actually uh, recently been able to obtain um, uh, digital copies of all of Florence Price's manuscripts for all her string quartet music, which is so exciting because now we can finally look at the manuscript and be like, okay, was our guest, you know, was our best musical guest right or were we wrong? Because with all these composers, everybody's learning their language for the first time. You don't have centuries of interpret, you know, interpretation and of recordings and of performing and historical analysis. I think a lot of people forget that, um, you know, how many books, you know, how many musical scholars have written books on Mozart? Right. You know, whereas how many books have been written about Samuel Coleridge Taylor? I mean, I know there's one out there. I think it's called Black Mahler. I forget who the author is, but, you know, there is problematic in itself, that title. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, I really feel like where the pressure comes from for me is, you know, I'm stepping into this new role as the newest violinist in the Catalyst Quartet. And we are laying down like the first interpretation for the widespread public for these pieces, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, setting the standard, you know, listen, creating the recordings that so many other people will listen to yes. uh, a- as a reference. Uh you know, shout out, you mentioned the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, shout out to them. Between that and the work you do as a chamber musician, you you must really have something against conductors to have figured out a way to not have to deal with a baton in your work. <laughs> it <laughs> how, seems that way. How, how does one become a member of a Grammy Award winning string quartet? What, what was your onboarding process like? Well, you know, like many other things, COVID has made the process different. Yeah. Um. So... Basically, what what the process was like, very simply, is, you know, for a couple of weeks, I sat down with the quartet um, and we just played together. They picked repertoire. They picked between, um, you know, they picked quite a range of repertoire. You know, the Catalyst Quartet, you can't really define what repertoire genre they stick to. Yeah. Because we really do play everything. But, um, you know, they picked some, you know, standard canon repertoire, Beethoven Quartet, some of the repertoire from Uncovered and some other things. And we just kind of sat down as if we were already a quartet and just try and just worked and um, and played together and tried to get a feel for each other. And um, we had a lot of conversations as well outside of, you know, the rehearsal process, you know, hanging out and just trying as much as possible to get to know each other as people. Yeah. Um, and of course, if it had not been COVID, we were supposed to have the experience of performing, a, going and performing a concert together. We were supposed to do a residency out in California. Unfortunately, that, you know, disappeared like everything else. But um, we did kind of try to set up as much as possible, like a real performance situation um, recording kind of thing. Yeah. As much as possible, you know. Uh, so that was kind of like the process of it. It's 
you know, it's not like auditioning for an orchestra job, you know? Right, right. I'm so uh, glad that you bring up non-rehearsal conversations because being a part of a, a chamber group is, you know, vibing as people, not just musicians. You know, in mm -hmm. those conversations, I wonder how, you know, uh, when you're when you're just talking and, and, and vibing with the Catalyst Quartet, I wonder how the conversation of racial equity and uh, and gender equity applies. I, I, we can see, you know, that gender equity has come away in uh, classical music quicker than than racial equity. But surely there are things that we don't see. I mean, specifically when it comes to gender equity, women in classical music, women composers in classical music, what did those conversations look like between you and your uh, your teammates? Well, it's definitely a conversation that is constant in our quartet. Um, you know, as a quartet, we take to heart um, very seriously um, the the quality and and of work by that of these composers that are being overlooked particularly because they're women or because of their race and um we actually you know i i don't want to say we go out of our way to seek out these composers because that makes it seem like they're separate right um but they're really uh a part of our conversation because they're a part of our lives um you know carlos carla and paul are all um uh, Latina, Latino. And, you know, this has been actually a really exciting growing experience for me because people who I find, um, I really trust and I can have a conversation with them about these issues. I mean, I remember sitting down and having a conversation with Carla and asking her, would you prefer to be referred to as Latina or Latinx? And can you explain to me what those differences are and, you know, ha sitting down and having these conversations and having an opportunity to be able to educate myself yeah. from these three people who have existed in this world much longer than I have. That's an amazing and growing experience for me. And I feel like I'm much better equipped to go out into the world and go out into the music world and take in this music of composers that have are that have been sidelined or are continuing to be sidelined for their race or gender. Yeah, it's that rapport and that courage that have to be mixed together to to make those conversations actually um, uh, effective. I want I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. You know that moment of realizing, wow, most of the things that I play and practice are by dead white European men. I was personally I was about twenty two years old when I started to have that realization, and it pushed me into the the line uh, of work I'm in now. Could could you sort of uh, go back and describe that aha moment for you? What what uh, inspired you toward that uh, that moment of, wow, I need to include more music by women and people of color in my own practice and in my own work. And shout out to your dog. I think that I hear that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, the mailman has decided to arrive. But um, I'm a little bit maybe embarrassed to say that that aha moment didn't really happened to me until I started working with the Catalyst Quartet. Oh, wow. Okay. And I have to say, I really owe it to their work that they were doing before I joined for me to have that aha moment. Um, I do recall, um, I mean, a lot of the um, composers I worked with in my time at Curtis actually, I mean, they're living current composers, but actually were women composers. Something I, you know, I actually kind of found myself thinking about one day 
when I was at Curtis was, oh, the majority of the composition students here are actually women, women. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're working with just six, you know, there's only six composition students at the school. I mean, it's a pretty small bubble, but that was something that was interesting. Um, But I really um, didn't have a lot of experience with female composers or composers of color until I joined the Catalyst Quartet. I remember um, my last summer at Marlboro, they played um, a Ferenc Nanette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, this piece is awesome. I was like, why isn't anybody playing this piece? I was like, it's super cool. So, you know, the trouble with all of this and part of the reason why the Uncovered Project is so, we feel is so important, um, is when you go and you look for these pieces, you can't find recordings anywhere. And the recordings that you do find are not really of the highest caliber. You know, there certainly are not, you know, 16 Grammy award winning albums of Florence Price. Right. Right. So, you know, and it bothers me when I hear people say, Oh, you know, I've played this, you know, there are certain Florence Price in particular, certain pieces of hers that as this sort of, um, movement to promote and include um, composers of color and female composers, you know, have latched on to these pieces of hers. The five folk songs of counterpoint is one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for orchestras, it's her symphony um, in E minor. Right. And they say, yeah, you know, it's not, you know, it's not really, yeah, my cup of tea. Like, I don't really feel like it's, you know, the greatest piece. And then they come back to me after they hear, you know, for example, our quartet perform the five folk songs in counterpoint and they say, oh, my God, I had no idea. I mean, that piece is so amazing. The way she uses the, um, you know, she manipulates the, these folk melodies with the counterpoint. It's so interesting, so creative. And and I think to myself about the number of pain, you know, of, of joyful, but also painstaking hours of digging right. through her the music to bring it to life. And people don't always are not always willing to apply that same effort to this music. And that's, I think, fundamentally what the core of it is. You know, Garrett, you asked me, do I approach or does the quartet approach this music differently than, say, the canon repertoire? Right. And, you know, the thing is this, you know, I guess this is an example of my point is no, it's it's this is complex music. It, It deserves the same care and love that any other, you know, well-established composer does because they are great composers. Yeah, and I always push back against the idea of, oh, well, it's an okay piece because how many Schubert symphonies are just okay and we perform them over and over again and all of this, you know, we we, we need to apply that that same energy. Um, You know, speaking of Florence Price, I I always think it's important to note that her 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 challenges were intersectional, you know, being a woman in the early 20th century and on top of that, being a black woman in mm-hmm. uh, the early 20th century. Un- understanding those sorts of intersections, um, th- does it make you think about your own intersections? How have your own intersections impacted the way you approach music, a- approach um, programming, how we look at composers who've been underrepresented? Well... First of all, I will say that Florence Price is a person that continues to amaze and also boggle my mind. Woman, Black, earliest, early 20th century and living in the South. 
Right. And you know, single Arkansas. mother on top of and, that, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, you look at the challenges that this woman had and probably experienced in her life and still, you know, is this incredible, just, a, you know, incredible lady, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about for myself that some of the challenges that I've faced, I think I can say from, a, you know, from my own personal side, I've been really lucky where I feel as though I haven't faced um, being held back because of, you know, something about myself, about, you know, my any part of my identity. You know, as a gay woman, um, I haven't felt like anything has been withheld from me for that reason. Um, but I will say that I have faced an own my own inner struggle within the classical music world um, through my, for my own identity. Um, you know, I'm definitely not uh, shy to admit that I, I um, kind of don't conform to normal, you know, female dress wear. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, when I was um, in my fourth year at Curtis, I was con I was concert master for the year for the orchestra. And um, I never really felt super comfortable wearing heels or wearing a feminine top. You know, I always wore pants. I never wore skirts or dresses or anything like that. And, you know, before I continue, I will, will say this one thing. I do think that it's a lot easier for women to kind of dress in a gender bending kind of way than it sure. is for men, which I think is a real shame. Um, that kind of, I'm sure, speaks to sort of this continued um, sort of male dominant world that we exist exactly. in. Exactly. I always contextualize that as a deep seated hatred of woman, you know, it, it, it being okay, more okay for a woman to dress in a so called masculine way and not the converse, I think underscores the issue that you're speaking to. Yeah. And it, and it kind of, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, why is it okay for a woman to, why is it socially acceptable for a woman to wear a suit and to look more masculine than it is for a man to embrace his femininity right. and dress wearing, you know, more gender bending, um, you know, clothing. And so, you know, in my own, I mean, I'm certainly not wild and crazy or, I, you know, I shouldn't even call it wild and crazy because people are just expressing themselves how they feel. But yeah. I'm certainly, you know, in a very small way, kind of in that gender bending category. Um, but I remember, you know, I was talking to a good friend of my my close friend and I said to him, we were going to perform a concert at Carnegie Hall, you know, and playing concert master. It's very exciting to have that, you know, 30 seconds of you get to walk out on stage by yourself, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so I said to him and I was like, man, like, I just, I really want to wear a suit. Like, I really want to wear a suit. And, you know, you look at the dress code guidelines, you know, for men, usually in orchestras, it's very simple and there's no question about it. It's, you know, tuxedo, white shirt, bow tie. Okay. But for women, you know, it's very, um, loose i guess it's like right. yeah like sometimes they specify like sleeve length or you know skirt length but it's like yeah we're all black yeah so i was like well okay i can fit into that and i can wear a suit nobody said that i can't wear a tie nobody said that i can't wear you know oxfords or whatever so 
I was in my, you know, I, I went out and I compiled pieces together for myself and I walked out on, you know, and I, I'm standing behind those two double doors and I was like, yes, I'm doing this. And I felt awesome. And I was, you know, I have to say, I was like terrified that, yeah. you know, the orchestra manager, and this is only from, you know, my own mind, there was right. nothing, you know, that anybody said to me to, to make me feel this way. But I was like, Oh my God, is somebody going to say something to me? Like, should I have brought like backup clothes? Like, is somebody going to blah, blah, blah. And you know, like when I walked out on stage that all disappeared and I guess I hope that maybe one person, maybe there was a kid in the audience saw that and was like, yeah, like, okay, if she does it, I can do it too. And I think that's kind of what these things, you know, if you have a discomfort or you're unsure of, of how your, um, you know, your own self image is going to be received by people, people will always judge you. Yeah. There are always going to be that person out there that's going to be like, uh, yeah, like mm, that's wrong. But for every person that's like that, I can guarantee that there will be somebody else that will see your, you know, your confidence and your courage. And they will be like, wow, if they can do it, I can do it too. And that's how things change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and fuck the haters is what I say. Yeah. <laughs> having, having, having shared, a, having had the pleasure of sharing a stage with you, I'll, I'll, I'll say for folks who don't know, you are always beautifully dressed, handsomely dressed. Oh, thank <laughs> uh, you, Garrett. You use the word luck. And, I, and I'm glad you did. I think um, each and every one of us who have found some sort of success in classical music have to acknowledge luck being a part of it. I, I certainly do. So you're lucky enough to be, you know, performing with this Grammy Award winning uh, string quartet, really, you know, making your uh, uh, paving the way for your career. Have have you made it? Do you still have aspirations to win an orchestral audition? Well, what does the future look like for you, considering the success that you've already had? Yeah, well, right off the bat, I don't necessarily have any aspirations to go out and win an orchestra job. And I don't have any aspirations to play a concerto on stage with a major orchestra. Um, I've never really had aspirations to be a soloist. And, you know, playing in uh, the Kylos Quartet, I mean, I always feel that playing in a quartet, you are a soloist. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, nobody's playing my part with me. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, I right now, I'm really excited to see how the quartet's career is going to keep expanding. And I think I'm really excited to see how you know, the projects that we're working on right now, such as Uncovered, are going to shape um, our, our career. And I think, um, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to. I mean, you know, this is really like my first full-time professional job, which is really exciting. And, um, you know, and I was recently um, added as a member of Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, which is a different situation. But I'm just looking forward to playing some really awesome concerts. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the side benefits of traveling, which is, you know, getting to see some new places and, uh, you know, enjoy some non-musical adventures. Yeah. Is uh, is James, the cellist James, still uh, involved with, with, with the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra? Oh, James Wilson? Yeah. Yep. James is still uh, um, very much involved. Actually, it's funny. Uh, him and I uh, always... <laughs> 
you know, always uh, compliment each other when when we get a haircut because, you know, <laughs> we joke that we're kind of like fade buddies, you know, yeah, you're like, yeah. ooh, nice fade. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's our little thing. James, uh, I, I used to, you know, again, in the before for a time, Sunday brunch was our thing. And James happened to be in town performing with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he was my uh, last brunch before everything, you know, went oh. to hell. So, <laughs> so, so shout out to him. Uh, but before I ask you to give us some, uh, some outro music, how can folks learn more about you, more about uh, Catalyst and more about Uncovered? Well, all of this information is um, really accessible on our website, um, thecatalystquartet.com. Um, we are very active on all of our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, our handle is Catalyst Quartet. Um, people can always check in um, for updates uh, on social media. Um, we'll always promote, promote upcoming performances and any kind of fun things that are coming out uh, that we're working on and, and sneak peeks on projects and such, such. Um, and, uh, you know, for uncovered, uh, we have, um, a projects section on our website where people can learn about uncovered. They can learn about where they can purchase our first album, um, uncovered volume one, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, um, check us out on Spotify, uh, you know, anywhere you can think of on the internet where you can find something, we're yeah. on it. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> when you're when you're taking a break, when when it's time for you to, you know, uh, not think about, you know, the violin or even string quartet music. What's what's a tune? What's a song? Maybe even a composition that uh, that that you spend time with when it's time to uh, to to debrief and lower your shoulders and take the shoulder rest off. You know, I have to admit, Garrett, um, I'm probably the least knowledgeable pop music musician <laughs> you will ever meet on the face of the planet. But I am a sucker for kind of the more oldies tunes, you know, and something that I actually have been listening to on and off again, like kind of religiously on repeat at some times is uh, that song uh, Smile. And I particularly like the Nat King Cole's uh, rendition of it. Um, but and I'll give you a classical music one. Something else that I find that if I need to just like sit back and melt is uh, Arvo Pert's um, Spiegel and Spiegel, mm. which I can, you know, like mirror and mirror. I know right? it's maybe super corny, but like <laughs> if you really lit yourself, you can really kind of just like melt into it, you know, and kind of let your thoughts just like melt with the music, you know. Spiegel M. Spiegel. Is that a tune that, I know it's a tune you know, is that a tune that you appreciate? I know you like Arvo Paird or, or have shouted out Arvo Paird before. Absolutely. There are two times when I heard Mirror in Mirror and, mm -hmm. and it destroyed me. One of them was uh, for a while after the 2016 election, I was going to a Unitarian church for a little bit, you know, just to. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was trying anything, man. And even Jesus, Go they on. had, they had a, uh, they had an amazing music program at the church that I was going to. And they would sometimes bring in performers, uh, outside of music. And they brought in some modern dancers who did a routine with, uh, with that playing in the background. that was amazing. And if you've at all watched 
the good place. Spiegel and Spiegel is used near the end talking about the nature of life and and um, Chidi Adagonye, mm-hmm. uh, his character is explaining how water, a droplet of water becomes part of this wave and it's and it's wonderful and then it breaks up and it becomes nothing only to turn right back around and become a part of the wave again. And, and it's a beautiful way to talk about uh, the cyclical nature of life. Um, it it chokes me up to think about, but it is a hopeful message that there's something to come back around to. Yeah. Another one of the things that uh, Abby and I talked about was just that moment of realization, realizing, wow, speaking of mirror and mirror, Spiegel and Spiegel looking in the mirror and saying, wow, I'm a part of this only performing dead white European composers with my instrument and, and what that meant. When I think about, you know, one of my moments of realization, when it comes to black classical music, uh, you know, music by, by black folks, that was always in my peripheral. I remember driving to work one morning when I was at WUOT. This was before I realized Women's History Month was a thing. And Melanie Dotson, shout out to Melanie Dotson down there at WUOT, uh, said something on, on the radio as I was driving in along the lines of, you know, with this being Women's History Month, I'm going to start every day with a piece of music by a woman and a woman's history fact and learning about the existence of this and learning that it was a thing put a fire under me to make sure that I was not only highlighting women, but doing my due diligence and highlighting black women mm-hmm. and women of color. So um, so I, I'm so glad that the Catalyst uh, Quartet is doing some of that um, centering, you know, black music and, and music by women and really helping uh, push this needle. Uh, we, we, we transition into the conversation uh, with the tune, Don't Smoke in Bed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, reminds me of our last interaction with Jesse Montgomery, who Abby replaced in the Catalyst uh, Quartet. We weren't, we weren't near bed, but we were definitely smoking, huh? Yep, that was a <laughs> memorable moment. Yep, all right. Here's a little bit of music by Jesse Montgomery to get us into the trilogy. All right, Scott, nothing really to talk about in the fourth movement yeah, today. Yeah, this, oh, this will be a light day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, go ahead and break it down. For Scott Oberlin Conservatory, they had a concert featuring black artistry. And what was the problem? What was the problem that people had? <laughs> Can I, 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 I have to be, I have to be honest here. I saw it on Twitter. I rolled my eyes and set it down. <laughs> For the people who I, I did that Homer Simpson and I just sort of melted into the, into the shrubs. For the people who did not see it, what is it? There was a flyer that went out for a um, uh, an online concert series that Oberlin was doing, and I nearly brought an article in about this very series right. a couple of weeks ago, but I missed it, so it didn't it wasn't relevant. But Oberlin has been trying to um, engage a lot of these conversations that we do here and uh, talking to musicians and composers of color in this live online series and this particular flyer during Black History Month about a program (laughs) of composers of color were five white guys, pictures of five. I think there was one white woman there. Oh, was there? Yeah. Okay, well, I told you. I just I just looked at it, saw Black History Month, all these white people, and I just set it down. I just, I, I just, 
I just said I can't. My reaction was laughter. I was not angry. I was really so. So none of y'all saw that. That that was my my reaction. It, it just mm-hmm. felt silly. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, that came out. The Oberlin Conservatory was dragged all over social media. The Oberlin Conservatory Facebook page deleted the post. But you know the internet is fast. Not only do we have the original post, we have variations on the post and memes. But I'll, I'll show oh, you some. Okay, <laughs> I was going to say they they did variations. I'll, 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 the the people did not oh, the Oberlin. Okay. Conservatory. I'll, okay. I'll show you some later. So anyway, after all of that, after the dragging of this uh, of this concert that was billed as celebrating black artistry, didn't fe- feature the pictures of anybody black. You know, after all of that drama, they deleted it and issued an apology. Um, I'll link the apology in the description of this, but I'll read the first little bit here. It says, on Sunday, February 28th, we posted a flyer on social media to promote the last event in our month-long Black History Month celebration. While the program showcased black composers, the flyer featured only photos of the five white performers. We acknowledge wholeheartedly that this was problematic and we accept and agree with the many critiques we have received in response. So one of the first things I want to make clear is that the problem was not the concert. One of the Mm -hmm, comments mm -hmm. that I got um, on my Facebook, uh, shout out to Rachel, uh, was asking, well, I have a string quartet of four white women. Is it problematic? And this question came from a good place. I, I will say she was asking, is it problematic for us to program an all black concert? And my response to her was that the focus was wrong with over with Overton, with Oberlin. It's not that, you know, an all white woman string quartet or as the example I put out in my Facebook thread, an all male woodwind quintet. It's not like you can't perform works by black people or that we can't perform works by women is that you have to remember who's being centered Mm -hmm. in the in in the flyer in any marketing for anything. We have to remember why the people are coming and why you want the folks to come. If you want me to. Garrett McQueen to see that you are doing something for black folks and celebrating black women and men of of decades past, uh, years past. I need to see their photos. I I need to see that Mm -hmm. instead of the performers because the you're just not reading the room. The 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 material is just not right. Even when it comes to triloquy, I am very intentional about not putting our photos in the descriptions because it's not about us it's about what we're talking about and the people we're talking about. And I try to make sure that when I choose photos and even opus titles that I'm speaking to the focus, which in this case, in this performance here with these microphones and keyboards and computers as our instruments is not about focusing on us. It's about focusing on the content that we're talking about. Um, So I I just want to make sure that, that that's clear. Radar always agrees with me during the triloquy. During the triloquy, he's got to get up. So, yeah, again, so the first point, it is not about them doing the wrong thing by making the program or white folks not being able to perform music by black people or men not being able to perform works by women. It's about remembering what the focus is. And if the focus is the black artistry, as that flyer said, that's what I need to see in the flyer. You were you were furthering the tradition of othering these composers by leaving out their their images. Um additionally, deleting the post, <laughs> you yeah. know, is funny. To me, because you want us to accept the apology, but you don't want to uh, be accountable for what you posted. You know, that's sort of dirty delete as the as the Internet. I didn't didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I didn't know that that was the thing. But Um, 
Um, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say that white ensembles should very much be playing music by, by composers of color. Um, and I will throw Oberlin a little bit of bail okay. on this because I think that apology covered all the bases. I think that I, I, I do buy what they wrote here in this Facebook post. Yeah, I have I have no reason, you know, not to believe. And I think it's important to note that Oberlin uh, was the first conservatory that was having black folks in there. So mm. there there is history there when it comes to the specific composers featured on the concert in question, you know, there was a composer on there who I understand Jeffrey Mumford was not allowed, not offered tenure at Oberlin or wasn't admitted. So even on a personal level, mm-hmm. when it comes to the actual composer and the actual institution, there's a little bit of tea there that even could have been addressed. So there were just multiple uh, marks missed. Everybody's dragging them. We, we all agree that th- this missed the mark. Mm-hmm. What I feel like, Scott, this, this, this podcast is called Triloquy. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to keep it as true and real as I can. What I think other folks will not talk about is the response from Jeff Scott. So we were talking about Imani Wins earlier in this opus. Jeff Scott, horn player, is on faculty at Oberlin and, of course, was involved in some of the stuff they had going on earlier in the month and felt like that he needed to go on the Internet um and make a statement about how Oberlin is trying to do better. Everybody calm down. I'm the black person that's going to get y'all off of their tail. So, so do that. Mm. I think it's important to note that when it comes to institutions like Oberlin with endowments that are uh, way up there, I Googled their endowment earlier today. Uh, and for my research, my little Google search, it looked like it's close to a billion dollars. So we have this huge institution that's making huge missteps like this. And you happen to have a black person on staff and that black person feels like that they have to go to bat because that's where some of his bag is coming from. That That's where some of his paycheck is coming from. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem with black folks entering some of these predominantly white institutions is that you have to live up under that respectability and sort of move in a way that is going to appease the masses, appease the people, but also keep you in a job. We talked about the problems with, you know, the idea of, you know, soft shoe and to keep your job. Mm So Mm -hmm. um, this is not me cussing out Jeff Scott because we all have circumstances and situations and, and, and a need to keep our job and, I think Jeff Scott really could have publicly agreed with the people in a way that wasn't sounding like, oh, don't be so hard on Oberlin. Because what I hear is, oh, don't be so hard on the folks who give me part of my paycheck. Maybe Mm. if I was if I was on the outside, it would be different. But, you know, Mm. I've I hesitated on whether or not to speak to that, but I feel like I have to because there are so many of us who are building our own things and practicing being um, unfiltered, not code switching and and really speaking our own truth in an unapologetic way. So there we go. There's my truth. My my biggest disappointment out of the whole thing was seeing Jeff Scott try to try to save them all respect, no shade, just real, real reaction to that. Um, I think the bigger point that I want to make um, 
before we close here concerning Oberlin, I think it could apply to many arts organizations, is that when you start to engage the conversation and the discourse of gender equity, racial equity, and classical music, that means you're coming outside to play with the rest of us. That's a that's a phrase they use a lot in hip hop, you know, oh, you wasn't outside or mm-hmm. I was outside. What, 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 help me sort of explain that when I talk about, you know, coming outside in a proverbial sense, as far as growing up, what do you think about when were you outside? Well, uh, let me use my analogy because you know how I like to say I'm staying on the porch. Right, right, right. You know, exactly. if you can't run with the big dogs, mm, you stay on the porch. Exactly. That's what I do a lot of the time. <laughs> so these guys are running with the big dogs. Right, right. You're, you're out running with the big dogs. When I, when I think about myself being outside, proverbially, when it comes to the, this discourse, I think about getting my first radio job and really having a responsibility and also being open to the criticism or whatever they wanted to throw at me because yes. I'm not in the stands. Yes. I'm not watching things happen. I'm on the court. I'm on the field. I'm I'm outside. And what institutions like Oberlin and these other institutions need to realize is that if you're coming to play outside, you're playing with me. Mm. And you're playing with the Black Opera Alliance and you're playing with the International Society of Black Musicians and you're playing um, with American Composers Forum, you know, not not a a black organization, but one that centers uh, racial equity. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of us out here really trying to make the world better. And with all of the response that this got, I mean, let me let me scroll down here just on this apology alone. There are. 850 comments. It went everywhere on Twitter. My Instagram and other folks' Instagram was really blowing up. So the respectability surrounding these institutions, the ivory tower of it all, is crumbling down because we aren't afraid to speak against these things. Maybe folks like Jeff Scott are. Mm. <laughs> no shade again, but we are not. I love to see the crumbling of this respectability. I love to see these institutions come outside and actually be willing to have this discourse. I don't believe it's all over and done for Oberlin. I don't think they're canceled. I think they are a great example of what's going to happen to a lot of these other organizations for the better. You know, we, we are bending and growing and, and changing isn't always comfortable. More often than not, it's uncomfortable if it's true and if it's genuine, right? So I think that's what Oberlin is dealing with here, and that's what more um, arts organizations are, are, are going to be having to deal with, you know, as they continue to come outside, play outside, come off the porch, mm-hmm. as you say, and really um, engage this dialogue. Um, I, I, I really have to say that this is a part of it, though. This apology is a part of it, and they'll... And whoever was involved with it will take this forward. Yeah. Guarantee. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But the accountability is such an important part of it. When I think about Women's History Month, as we're closing here, I think about how I have been complicit, even as a a gay man, a black gay man, ways in which I have upheld the patriarchy. And I have to continually check myself and make sure that I'm doing everything I can. Again, I'm thinking about uh, Arvo Pert, Spiegel and Spiegel, mirror and mirror, really looking in the mirror and saying to myself, okay, in what ways am I complicit? And what ways do I need to be accountable? And what ways can I use my position to really empower, to really empower women, to really empower women of color, people of color? And uh, and, and when we start to see that, of course, the, um, the, the field and the rest of the world is going to be better. But Again, if you're going to play outside, you <laughs> you better be ready because Oberlin got it this weekend, didn't they? They will they will not they will not soon forget this. And uh, I'm gonna tell you what, 
it's a lot more institutions that are going to get it. And just because the people, just because we have not gotten to you yet, does not mean that uh, we will not get to you. So in the meantime, be blessed. See y'all next week. (laughs) 